Hi all, welcome to Anime Echoes, where we look at anime, manga, light novels and the like to discuss our favourite series. This is an analysis of the second part of Bakano Volume 2. We'll be going through the interweaving plot following mafia families, legends and alchemists. The two characters we'll begin with are both conductors. There is a young conductor and an old one. The young conductor seems to love ghost stories and spooky things and explains to the older conductor the tale of the rail tracer. This monster works his way from the back of the train to the front, leaving a wake of bodies. It chases trains in the cover of Moonless Nights. The old conductor begins recounting his own ghost story. As this tale continues, we come to find out that this conductor is in fact part of the lemurs. The tale goes, due to being so terrified of death, the members became ghosts, and these ghosts had a leader. They tried to dye the things they feared in their own colour, in order to bring themselves back to life. Let's break this tale down bit by bit. We'll start off with the idea of the lemurs being terrified of death. What could cause them to be so terrified of dying? Maybe it's anyone who could kill them at any time? The people that could kill them would probably be the authorities. So maybe it's the authority or the government of the United States. This story is kind of set in that setting, so potentially their enemy is the US. Since they are a terrorist group, it would make sense for them to fear the enemy in that way. So let's assume that the enemy is the authorities of the US. This fear towards them made them feel like ghosts, which is the next line. That they became ghosts due to being so terrified of death. So the fear took the life out of them, essentially. Now the next statement is, they died the things they feared in their own colour in order to bring themselves back to life. What does it mean to die something in their own colour? Dying something in your own colour could refer to taking over territory in like a region. When you think of like conquerors in the past and you look at a map and the territories that they hold, on the map you dye that area that they hold in like one colour to represent that it's been taken over. So taking over certain territories in the US that their enemies occupy would essentially be dying what they fear in their own colour. The next part of that line is, they died the things that they feared in their own colour to bring themselves back to life. What does it mean by wanting to bring themselves back to life? When you bring yourself back to life from a ghost-like state, you're basically rejuvenating yourself. So what can rejuvenate someone? while removing fear from their lives. So compiling all of this together, by expanding their territory and probably getting back their leadership in the form of Huey, they can quell the fear that they feel and eventually feel whole again and not ghost-like. It seems the first step forward is rescuing their boss. There's a lot to infer from this conversation and a lot of it is very vague. Um, but I think it's really good and gives us a lot of context in regards to who the lemurs are. Either way, the goal of this group is to rescue their boss by making demands and using the train as their hostages. Now this lemur conductor does try to shoot the young conductor and during that commotion we hear that the rail tracer has awoken. Later on, Jacuzzi runs into the carriage to see the mess and from his perspective, he sees that someone was shot and that the other person was ripped apart with a mangled head and just a pool of blood. 
Now I've been spoiled on who the Rail Tracer is, so I won't be making any speculation in regards to that. I also remember a scene from YouTube where a kid gets utterly destroyed brutally and I'm wondering where that's going. Overall, other than that, uh, the, the big spoiler of the Rail Tracer, I don't know much else on what's going on. So moving on, uh, we see a cool scene where Isaac, Miria and Jacuzzi all interact. Jacuzzi sees Isaac and Miria and is first scared to interact with them. One of Jacuzzi's associates, John, says that he shouldn't judge them because he's also got like a sword tattoo on his face. Because of this, Jacuzzi starts weeping but Nice steps in and calms him down. Nice once again acts almost as Jacuzzi's emotional tether, where she manages his emotions and spoils him according to John and Fang. Spoiling someone is generally something a parent would do and Nice says she just wants to see him grow. And because she wants to see him grow, she pushes him to meet Isaac and Miria. It seems Nice almost acts like an emotional parent to Jacuzzi and as you recall, Jacuzzi doesn't have a mother anymore, so do we see Nice kind of filling that emotional void potentially and also cheering him on in ways? Maybe that's why Nice and Jacuzzi's connection seems to be special, because she's there for him in ways that others are not. Nice actually acts different with the other members of the gang, she talks very straightforward and formal, so Jacuzzi is special to her. But as of now, I don't know how special this connection is. Jacuzzi, Isaac and Miria's interactions are great. So in line with how he always is, Jacuzzi starts crying. His crying makes Isaac and Miria cry, so now everyone's crying. Eventually Isaac and Miria tell Jacuzzi that it's all you can eat and shoves food in their mouth, in his mouth sorry, which stops him from crying. By the way, it's not all you can eat. Jacuzzi warms up to both Isaac and Miria and Nice even gets jealous a little. We hear that it takes a lot for Jacuzzi to trust other people and feel safe around them. This could also be referring to the fact that his mother left him so perhaps the worst, so perhaps he thinks the worst of others when he first meets them. He could be thinking like, just like my mother, you will also leave me or hurt me or something like that. Um, but it might not be that intense. It might just be, um, you know, I trusted my mother and maybe I made the wrong choice and I hope I'm not going to make the wrong choice again. Or maybe it's just in Jacuzzi's nature. He's worried at first, but once he's comfortable, he's very caring and even trusting. So this interaction was the one I was looking forward to the most. Jacuzzi is a pretty exaggerated character with his fears, and I had an inkling that Isaac and Miria would hit it off with him pretty well. The interactions were a treat, and the coloured image of them all talking was a perfect way to just showcase the scene. The boy that Jacuzzi was talking to in the last volume also appears in this scene, alongside the senator's wife and her daughter. The boy's name is Selezamaya, I don't know how to say his name, um, I'm just going to call him the boy, or boy C, because he's uh, his first name starts with C, so I'm just going to call him boy that, yeah boy that starts with C. Um, they all end up talking about the infamous Rail Tracer, and naturally Jacuzzi is shaking in his boots as it's a murderous legend about the train. This murderous legend is, um, a monster will kill those aboard, basically. And Jacuzzi freaks out and goes to the conductor's room to see if it can solve the problem of the Rail Tracer. Nice apologises for Jacuzzi's behaviour of always being scared and a coward. 
But Mrs. Berrien, the senator's wife, says, Yes, I know. Jacuzzi is kinder than anyone else. She makes a connection between worrying and being kind. Being afraid could annoy people. It could cause more problems. But it can also stem from a deep feeling of care towards others. It's because Jacuzzi cares for his newly found friends that he goes to investigate. Not once does he blame Isaac for bringing up the rail tracer story. His concern is immediately the safety of his friends. We get to see that Jacuzzi's fear from a different vantage point, where before we might have thought it stemmed from just creating the worst case scenarios in his head. Now we know that it can stem from a deep sincerity towards those he cares about. Alright, moving on to the action. Now we do end up having a three-way battle in one of the compartments where the senator's wife, Isaac and Miria, and many other passengers are at. So it's a pretty tense situation. Essentially, it's between a member of Jacuzzi's gang called Nick, the white suits, who are Lad's group, and the black suits, who are the lemurs. Nick from Jacuzzi's gang interprets uh, Nisa's um, instructions incorrectly and basically takes out a knife to take over the compartment. From the white suit's perspective, we have Vicky, who wins the draw to do the killing. They're basically wanting to go after the senator's wife, and the black suits, the lemurs, are wanting to take over the train, so the compartment. You really feel the, the plot move like faster in this scene, and you're thinking, at any moment, this will all come together, all three parties will crescendo in some grand scene, and it does. That's how, that's how it comes to be. What happens is Nick from Jacuzzi's gang basically shows up and then runs away. And Vicky also shows up um, and he ends up dying to the black suits. It's a fun scene because you know that the three interweaving plots are going to converge and as a reader you can't wait to see the chaos happen. Now during this commotion, Lad Russo of the white suits can't contain himself. He says, I need to make it interesting. So he convinces himself to go into the chaos despite Vicky from his own group already taking care of it. But we know he dies, so I guess Lad does make the correct choice, but it's not out of some care for his own men. Lad wants and needs interesting things to happen. If there is nothing interesting, then he will make it happen so that the boredom will go away. What he finds most interesting is bloodshed, so he really is a true agent of chaotic carnage. Now begins a great boxing match. Led takes on the three men in the black suits who killed Vicky. He uses one of the guy's guns upside down to shoot another, and then uses the guy he is holding as a meat shield, then beats the guy over and over and over almost like a boxer. True to Led's character, he notices that the black suit guys think they're invincible, untouchable, so he changes his target from the senator's wife to the black suits temporarily. He can't wait to flip the tables on them. The beatdown in the light novel was really kinetic. Like, Lad really felt like a crazy person who can do the impossible with just sheer tenacity of will. His hands even get bandaged because he punched a black suit guy so many times. It seems to always be overkill when it comes to this guy. Now moving on to the black suit's crew, so Goose and Chane. Apparently Goose tends to have like a really mechanical expression when giving orders. This further like reiterates his calculating nature, but mechanical implies an almost like robot-like demeanor. Now this terrorist group acts in an almost religious-like fashion. 
they simultaneously click their heels together and talk about how the altar is the train and that the passengers are the sacrifices. They also redefine justice as bringing back their boss Huey. They are on a mission that will attempt at pushing through anything, but as you all know, Lead doesn't kill Lead does kill a couple of the black suited men, so it won't be as easy as they wanted. Once again, Goose gives the impression that he is on a religious pilgrimage. When he hears about the white suits, he says to himself, Should I consider this some sort of trial? Like a trial from who? A trial from God? Now Goose Goose is kinda of questioning these things and acting like he's on like a like a path. He's got a he's got a destination and he's being like guided somewhere or he's supposed to kinda of arrive somewhere. Now, Goose enters the compartment where there was the boxing beatdown and sees the senator's wife. Surprisingly, the senator's wife shows like a lot of courage. She begins to make a plan to hide a daughter and the boy starting with C that Jacuzzi met and makes it seem like those in the white suits actually kidnapped them, but in fact she actually hid them. Hearing this, Goose becomes angered, then immediately cool and collected. Goose really does act very mechanical, and as mentioned before, he's almost like a robot that turns his feelings on and off. Does Goose repress his emotions in a robot-like fashion and then only lets them out when he's about to commit some grand violence? Lastly, Goose does notice that a window is open, and he queries it. A passenger next to the window exclaims that it was a woman in coveralls. He thinks of the shadowy woman he met before with Chane, where the shadowy woman had the look of carnage in her eyes, and I, I think we, uh, like later on, we kind of figure out who this person is, um, but I'll be saving that for the later portion. So uh, a couple of interesting things to note is we meet Fang and John, who are Jacuzzi's gang friends throughout all of this. Fang is Asian and John is Irish. So there's this like racist person that they meet on the train and they try to blame them for the incident with Lad and the black suits and you know all the fighting. Um, basically the guy feels really threatened and takes it out on them. We actually learned um, kind of during the scenario that the Transcontinental Railroad was built by the Irish and the Chinese. So basically this guy needs to stop acting like he owns a place and basically show some respect. We also learn very early in the novel that the Intercontinental Railroad symbolized hope for the people. During the Great Depression, there were 8 million without jobs, and it was the railways that transported those who participated in the Hunger March, and it carried what little food existed. It represented the belief that things could get better. It represented hope. I do wonder if Lad's goal is to snuff. I do wonder with with Lad's goal being to, you know, snuff out hope, I wonder if his decision to put the flying pussyfoot into the middle of Manhattan is almost like his way of extinguishing the hope from the people, to crush the American dream it might represent. I really enjoy these little tidbits of information we get about the Prohibition era and the things prior to that era. It adds a lot of flavour to the setting and we get to learn all these interesting facts. Lastly, we actually get to go back and see Firo. This was totally unexpected. I didn't think we'd even get to see him in this story. 
He's talking with Berger from the Gandalf family, and Fira reveals that he will be picking up Isaac and Miria from the station, which made me smile. He's hoping we get to see Ennis as well at the station. Uh, so Berger Gandalf states that he's picking up the Claire. She sounds infamous and like a badass, a natural-born contract killer, and also, interestingly enough, a woman in coveralls. So she's probably that shadowy figure that Goose and Chain met. I mean, sorry, Chane met. I wasn't that interested in her before, but now I'm really keen to meet Claire. We learn more though. Miser is also picking up someone too, and it's an alchemist from 200 years ago. I'm really excited to see who that person could be. And this entire scene was perfect, with just the slight movement away from like the main story, uh, by going to Fura, the author manages to make the story even more exciting. It's a really good way to increase the mystery and the hype for the upcoming characters. Like this small cutaway was one of my favourite moments of this part because I had to actually stop myself from reading further because of the, the hype and the potential. Now lastly, the theme of old generation versus new generation wasn't really developed outside of the prologue. Maybe it was just for the prologue, uh, maybe it's further developed down the road, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but there is potentially a new theme rising, and that's the idea of eating. So Isaac and Miriam say something interesting. If you eat something um, that ate something, they say you ate, you eat that other thing. If somebody picks up a bag that has lots of money in it, that person has both the money and the bag. So this concept of eating something is very similar to the immortal's ability to think and, and eat, to consume the other person alongside their memories. So the memories would be the other thing that gets eaten other than the main body. Lad also talks about devouring the train and having a feast. I'm curious to see if this concept of eating is something that gets further explored as we're kind of going through the novel. Overall, I really enjoyed this portion of the story. There was a lot of action, everything was like super hectic. So many conflicts and the pace feels really fast and pretty fun. I'm really looking forward to see how this continues and personally my favourite parts were learning more about Jacuzzi and also his interactions with Isaac and Mira. Uh, the three-way fight, the build-up and the crescendo of that and learning about the lemurs from the conductor. It was very vague and uh, I feel like I was speculating like a ton, I could be completely off but it was um, just thinking about it was some of the most fun I had whilst I was reading. Um, and yeah, we'll be going through the next part soon. So thanks for listening and I'll see you then. Cheers.